Programming Notes episodes, the general concept is that you can get an extended summary of episodes if you decide that you'd rather have that than listen to the episodes themselves, as well as some notes about what's going on in the community or how you can be helpful and useful in the community. Programming notes for the week of February 5th, 2023. I don't want to say anything overly dramatic here, but I'm finally free, hopefully, from the perception that I own the community. I've essentially handed over everything. We still have to figure out like the GitHub because that's a little more difficult. And the new team, Constantia, that are, are going to be running the community are getting up and moving and starting to do a bunch of uh, interesting things and they're doing the meetup and there's going to be um, new opportunities if you want to get involved in the newsletter and there's just a whole lot of things there. So if you want to learn more about that, uh, go ahead and check out the Slack. On my side on Data Mesh Radio, I mentioned I am doing more panels. I'm, I'm currently sourcing for over 10 panels that will likely happen in the next three to four months. So if you have topics you really care about and or you want to be on a panel or especially as well, if you have suggestions for guests, right, please do get in touch. You can find me very easily on many different places. I need some feedback on what you want to have people talking about. So what's on tap for this week? On Monday, we have episode 190, Data User Experience or DUCS, you know, D-U-X, an introductory panel, which is a something that we had posted as well on the Data Mesh Learning uh, YouTube, but this is with Karen Passmore, Juanes Rosiers, and Alice Parker. On this one, there's just lots of key takeaways that you'll get to hear in a second. I think I got to 32 of my own takeaways on this. So there's a ton of really good information about how do we actually think about users of data and data platforms in a data mesh implementation? And how do we start to serve them? How do we think about what user experience actually means when it comes to data? And, you know, I, I think there's all these things of, you know, the user experience should be in, inherent and it should do this. No, but we should focus on abstracting away the tools and things like that. So people can interact with the data instead of interacting with the data tooling. But far easier said than done. So I think you'll pick up a lot of really interesting stuff from that. On Wednesday, it's episode 191, which is Jamax corner number 17, AI and ML's place in data mesh. So this is the start of a new recording where Jamax was a trooper, despite not feeling so great. So, uh, you know, I really appreciate her doing that. It kicked off a conversation about how does AI and ML fit into data mesh? Many people out there are overlooking, you know, how AI and ML are a big part of data mesh, and that really limits the value of the work we are doing. How do we change our view of data in general? We got into about how do we do that so we categorize our data by domain, not by end usage, right? We don't want to build data products that are for, you know, kind of diagnostic analytics and a different data product for AI and ML. We want to get to a place where we build data products that can be used by all, no matter the use case. And within Data Mesh, if we don't serve AI and ML well, can we really be as nimble as we need to be with running experiments and being able to do things at scale and all of that? 
On Friday, we have episode 192, Diagnosing the Analytics Gap, all about diagnostic analytics with Joao Sousa. So Joao gave a ton of really good insight into how many organizations are falling short on their diagnostic analytics practices. It really helped open my eyes to how easy it is to overlook the why and focus on the what when it comes to analytics and how easy it is to get stuck in a rut with your analytics practice. I think this one's very helpful for those looking to get far more out of the analytics groundwork they are already doing. A lot of organizations are already doing everything to do the diagnostic analytics well, but they're just not executing on that. So with that, on to the extended summaries for the panel and the interview. I know I kind of say it here in a second, but I do want to emphasize this is a really long extended summary. It's 16 minutes. So just uh, be, be prepared for that. Thanks. Extended summary for episode 190, Data User Experience, or DUCS, an introductory panel with Karen Passmore, Alice Parker, and Juanis Rosiers. So Karen, who's the CEO at Predictive UX, and you may recognize her name from a previous episode, led this discussion with Juanis uh, who is a product manager at Raito, also <laughs> former guest on this podcast, and Alice, who's a data engineer at DNB, also a former guest. Um, this panel was held in partnership with Data Mesh Learning. So this extended summary kind of buckle up because there's quite a few of, of kind of t- key takeaways instead of what I've typically done. So I think this is going to be somewhat interesting, but also kind of buckle up. So Juanis himself actually wrote up some of his key takeaways. The first, you know, Ducks or data user experience is Ducks, handles user experience using data for all your users. You know, that's data producers, data engineers, data analysts, data scientists, report users. Hence, it is not and certainly not restricted to data platform user experience. Number two, data products are typically chained from producer-oriented data products up until consumer-oriented data products. Downstream downstream product and UX requirements are completely different than the upstream, yet you should be considering all of them. This friction between global UX and local user experience UX is the biggest challenge to scale data user experience. Number three, much more than typical digital products, you have no idea how people interact with your data products, right? We are moving more and more to self-service analytics, which means that while developing a data product, you don't know what will end up on the screen of your user in a lot of cases. You can wireframe fixed dashboards, but you can't for a lot of other data products. Number four, as always, accessibility of your data product is a huge part of your user experience. Next to this, it is important to monitor usage to continuously evolve your product. Number five, domain thinking exceeds source thinking in your product. You should abstract away the concept of data sources. Users are interested in valid and bounded insights, and that's typically domain bounded, right? It's not about 
what was in the source system. The user doesn't care how it was stored in the source system. They care about what's the information. How can I get insights from this? Number six, and last but not least from Honest, you need top-level decisions on data product granularities. To make sure you can connect certain data products, they should be interoperable and preferably on the same granular level. Which level to pick is mainly guided by company KPIs, hence you need management support to pick these. Juan has talked about that in his episode, which I think was episode five. So myself, I am pretty new to thinking and dealing with UX, with user experience and data, So I took an opportunity to write down some of my own takeaways and that may or may not agree with any or all of the panelists. Hopefully you'll find them somewhat useful. I'm going to start with my most key, which is my most key eight. And then we've got 24 more that are coming after that. So (laughs) buckle up. Uh, Number one, if data is not usable, is it useful? How many data projects fail simply because no one really made the data usable? When you think about user experience, if it's not usable, it's not useful. Number two, user experience KPIs are really important because it's such an easy thing to overlook. If nobody is really thinking about what is the user experience and has that as kind of their remit, is it going to get focused on? Are we going to make this stuff usable, right? Number three, if you have a bunch of fragmented user experiences in your data value chain, your overall user experience will will suffer. Think about this kind of like a dish when you're cooking, right? You might prepare all the, the ingredients perfectly, but if they were all cooked separately, will there be the right flavor harmony? Probably not. It will be disjointed flavors that don't blend well. And so you have to think about kind of at the dish level, not just at the ingredient level, and maybe even at the meal level and how, how it integrates into your business strategy. Uh, I'm not going to go down that, that path <laughs> with that extended analogy. Number four, sometimes we think about the target business process in user experience, so we don't always have to think about directly using a platform. We can think about how things integrate into a business process, a workflow. If I don't have a UI, but I'm interacting with data and that's part of my day-to-day role, that's a user experience around data. You know, Juan has mentioned something a little similar uh, in, his, in his set of uh, takeaways. Number five, data products and data work need three things, business requirements, technical requirements, and user requirements. Many skip the user requirements at their own detriment. The best way to improve user experience is to actually talk to the users about their wants and needs. (laughs) Number six, empathy is crucial to data user experience. Make sure empathy is baked into what you do. Stop prioritizing your technical requirements and business requirements over your user requirements. Number seven, it's very hard to figure out the user experience path between I create a data product and user self-serve drives an action from the data product. It can feel a bit underpants gnome-like. If you're not familiar with that, it's from South, South Park. And they have this, this plan to uh, build their business. And it's step one, steal underpants. Step two, ah, question marks, right? Step three, profit. And they're just trying to figure out step two, right? How do we go from the stealing to the, the profit? So get really in-depth talking to your team about what is necessary to actually get to an actual, well, you know, an actual actionable insight 
from a data product, right? You, you can't just go, I'm going to create a data product and value will fall out. Number eight, um, user experience technical debt, while not insurmountable, will be a bigger hindrance than many expect because the user experience is typically intrinsically tied to the underlying implementation. So to improve the user experience to a great degree, it can also require improving a lot of the underlying implementation, right? A lot of your user experience can be hard-coded in with the underlying implementation. Definitely not always the case, but it's something to watch out for. It's going to be somewhat hard sometimes to improve your user experience because of your technical debt at the architecture level. So a lot of additional takeaways. Um, Number one, User experience is often overlooked in data because historically, most data manipulation or analysis has been performed by experts in their own domain, such as a business analyst is an expert in SQL, so all they need is SQL, or data engineers have handled ingestion and transformation, so there hasn't been a great user experience for that. Number two, it's easy to get trapped in the idea that a data user is just a data consumer. But if we aren't designing and creating a good user experience for producers and anyone else involved in dealing with data, we're looking for trouble. Number three, each user persona has different requirements. And it's important to not try to design one-size-fits-all experiences because it will probably be one-size-fits-none. Number four, user experience is about lowering the bar to working with data to make it actionable whether for a producer or consumer or anyone else. How do we remove friction from going from data to action? Number five, data consumer user experience spans a lot of things from finding, then accessing, then understanding data, and then often transforming that data for their own purposes, whether that's into a dashboard or whatever. Number six, data user experience can be improved at any point in a data project's life cycle, but it's always best to start at the beginning if possible. But it's kind of that, you know, the best time to to start was at the beginning. The second best time to start is now, right? Seven, how can we make it easier, quicker, more reliable, et cetera, to get to an initial answer on, is this data valuable, Right. That's a great user experience is getting to a low friction answer of, should I continue to do this work? (laughs) Number eight, part of ensuring a good data user experience is enabling the data consumers to easily communicate their expectations and requirements to data producers. It's not just the UX at point of interaction with the data, but also the UX to make the data better. How can you Think about your user experience in the communication around data. It's not just touching the data. It's the communication as well. Number nine, it's important to understand focusing on user experience isn't about right or wrong. It's about improving the user experience over time, right? Oh, this user experience is not great right now. Well, then let's work to improve it. It's not this thing sucks. Nobody's ever going to use it. We move on and we create a new one. Now let's improve it. Number 10, The data producers and consumers are often an afterthought when designing data architecture. The user experience is something at best in those instances smeared on top to try and make it a little easier to deal with when it should be a crucial aspect of the data architecture itself. Number 11, 
when many people think about data user experience, they think about someone consuming from a dashboard. Not all the steps that data had to go along to get that into that dashboard. And that's all the user experience. Number 12, metadata is crucial to helping people understand the data they are accessing, especially when you consider being able to trust data as part of the user experience. If you can't trust it, you won't use it. Number 13, it's important to think about user experience as a life cycle because there is a data life cycle. Information is created and then acted upon creating more information of a sort. We can't think of it as you know data is consumed and that is the end of the line for the business when it comes to broad user experience around data. Number 14, it's crucial to think about user experience at the data product level but even more so at the informational or question level. How can data be combined from multiple sources? Does user experience extend to data interoperability standards even? Yeah, I'd say probably, but that also shouldn't be managed by the US UX team necessarily. But when you think about, I'm a producer, I want to see, can this interoperate with things? Like if that standard isn't there, then your user experience kind of sucks because you have to do point-to-point inter- interoperability. Uh, Number 15, a very big part of user experience is just encouraging conversations because then UX ideas will emerge. Oh, you're, you're trying to do X? That makes so much sense. Let me make this change to make that less painful. But too often, users take what is given and don't pipe up. Give them room and encouragement to share feedback. Similarly, open communication seems really integral to getting to a good UX. You need people interviewing the users, but users should also need to have space to discuss too, right? UX knowledge transfer shouldn't only happen because someone asked. Number 17, information transfer can be really hard especially if we do it as like pure documentation. Look for ways to better enable sharing of information. Lower the friction to creating simple information sharing mechanisms, whether that's sharing the data or the metadata. I've talked about this, about creating a simple video. Alice in the, in the uh, panel talked about, if I were to try and document out how to ride a bike, it would be a nightmare, but I can show you pretty quickly in a video. Right? Think about how we create those low friction ways to share information. Number 18, a huge benefit of data mesh is reliable and scalable data sharing. Yes, but it's also about the art of the possible. Oh, we have this data. What about XYZ use case? Can we do that? How can we embed curiosity and an ability to explore more in our data systems and our user experience? but while still protecting privacy, you know, PII, regulatory, all that fun stuff. Number 19, it's easy to get myopically focused on the platform user experience and not the total data user experience. Some of that is cultural too. You want to try to design for it, but the platform team can't own developing the culture. But making it loud and clear what would drive more value, like having these conversations, what would drive more value helps you to design a better overall data user experience. Number 20, and we're getting close to the end here, folks, don't worry. Number 20, it's very hard to know how a user will interact and experience a data product. 
So have some conversation with potential users and maybe give them a private tutorial so they don't go off the rails, right? It's really hard to embed kind of understanding guardrails into the data we share. One is Rosier's talked about something similar in his, his key takeaways, right? Number 21, it's easy to lose sight of cost when considering user experience. How do we make it so we can enable great experiences in a cost-effective way? Number 22, it would be great to have data usability design patterns and methodologies emerge for creating usable data products, but we are very early days there. There really hasn't been many people sharing about how we do this and, and data usability design patterns. Number 23, usability testing is pretty crucial because while they aren't, you know, quote unquote, your enemy, the saying no plan survives contact with the enemy is still apt with data work in general. Don't design in a vacuum. Work on constant communication and information flow. And finally, number 24, it's crucial to think about user experience at the micro and the macro level. If you only think about it at each data product, you are missing the information of the organization and how it all interoperates to, to tell stories, to, to have insights, all of that. But it's also pretty easy to focus on the grand platform, right? And then dealing with the data products themselves is a bit of a nightmare. So again, it's not easy, but I think if we think about these things, we can really make a lot of progress and make our data user experiences much better. Extended summary for episode 192, Diagnosing the Analytics Gap, all about diagnostic analytics, an interview with Joao Sosa. So in this episode, I interviewed Joao, who's the director of growth at Causa AI. To be clear, though, he was only representing his own views. So I'll use the phrase, the four types. I'll use it pretty often throughout this summary. And it's, it's a lot in the episode as well. So Joao started by what is the four types, the, you know, discussing that there are four types of analytics, descriptive, what is happening, diagnostic, why is it happening, predictive, what might happen in the future, and prescriptive, what actions should we take based on what we know. Most of analytics work over the last 30 years has been the descriptive, and both descriptive and diagnostic are typically owned by the analytics team. Talk a little bit about how that might uh, shape up in data mesh a little bit long further in this summary. But you know, data science, ML, AI, whatever you want to call it, have moved the needle for doing predictive and prescriptive analytics the last few years. But diagnostic analytics remains underserved. The diagnostic analytics gap, which is a, a phrase that Joao uses a lot, exists for a number of reasons in Joao's view. On the people side, diagnostic analytics requires two sets of skills or knowledge, the analytical plus technical and the business domain, right? The business in the domain. Without that domain knowledge, it is far harder to connect the dots around the why. A key concept in data mesh is shifting that ownership left. Yes, we know sales in this region are falling, but why? What change? 
Joao believes diagnostic analytics requires the most domain knowledge of any of the four types. One note I would say is I always think of kind of the Pastafarian or the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster figure as to why they dress like pirates and how the number of pirates is strongly inversely correlated to global temperatures. You know, there's an XKCD about correlation doesn't mean causation, right? And so I'm, I'm thinking about that as well in this. And we really think about the why. Um, on the tools and processes side, Joao believes diagnostic analytics is far less developed than any of the other four types. D- dashboards are great for descriptive analytics. What is happening? It, and it can even include some exploration, but they are difficult to use to understand the why, drilling down to the root cause of, of what you know, we know what happened, but why? Why is that is that actually occurring? Culture around diagnostic analytics is another large issue for many or uh, organizations. There are many varied approaches to diagnostic analytics and lots of differing views on the actual value of doing the deep diagnostic analytics. Joao has three different diagnostic analytics in maturity stages before getting to a well-functioning approach. The least mature is kind of the stuck in the what, where the business stakeholders are the ones trying to do diagnostic analytics with low data fluency to drive to the why. They're only reporting the what, the descriptive analytics. The second maturity level is, quote unquote, the usual suspects. Essentially, the team builds lots of slice and dice dashboards and then just monitors things using that. Uh, They don't think to keep adjusting their angles and dig in. The third immaturity level is, quote unquote, need for speed. The domains have the capabilities, usually via embedded analysts, to analyze their own data, but are almost always siding with speed versus comprehensiveness of analysis, right? Even when the comprehensive analysis is the thing that actually would be better in this case. The world and business are changing fast, but it takes time to do good analytics, you know, well, to actually generate actual insight. A note that I would have is, you know, kind of about this whole topic is this brings up the question of where diagnostic analytics lives in data in a data mesh implementation. If domains have high data fluency, then presumably they can do their internal analysis. But what happens if the information to drive to the why is cross-domain? This is why I believe many domains are likely to have their own business analysts, but organizations will still have a centralized business analyst team too. If you want to kind of dig into a little bit more about that, you could listen to Ryan Dolly's recent episode. On the question of who does the diagnostic analytics in most organizations, an empowered and highly data literate domain or a centralized analytics team, Joao said, it depends. In a low data maturity organization, it's typically the analytics team hopefully pairing closely with the business at least. In a higher data maturity team, it's about upskilling the subject matter experts in in data and providing the right tools so they can do the analysis themselves. Joao shared two signals you might be quote-unquote stuck in the what, right? That you need more diagnostic analytics maturity by far, right? This again was the first of the the three things of uh, diagnostic analytics immaturity. The first signal is in your weekly or monthly review meetings, you are talking about what is happening 
And there are only some high-level guesses as to why. Oh, that's probably because we changed the website and not much more. Nothing is data-driven answers or even hypotheses. The second signal is reflecting that you haven't taken any real data-driven actions with a large impact recently. If you aren't driving your actions from your data, it's likely you aren't answering the why questions. It's a lot harder to detect if you are in the, the usual suspects phase of maturity per usual. The data teams here aren't getting lots of additional requests. The business people are generally happy because they have dashboards that show a lot of information sliced and diced in how they typically look at things. But they are only testing existing hypotheses and not really coming up with fresh new insights. So two signals that you are in that usual suspects are that there aren't really any new insights or hypotheses and there aren't many requests from the domain to the data team. The third signal, one that's indirect, is that because there is that lack of incremental data work and requests, the data teams start to become more disconnected from the business. Teams that are stuck in the need for speed maturity level, Zhuao said while it's a better place to be, it's still frustrating. Teams are always trying to balance thoroughness of analysis versus speed. So some signals you are in that need for speed is the pressure to cut corners on thoroughness of analysis in the name of speed constantly. And then that actually happening and constantly cutting those corners is another signal. And another one would be constant high priority interruptions for diagnostic analysis, juggling too much and putting aside the long-term work to take care of the fast turnaround requests. When teams break past the immaturity stages for diagnostic analytics, Joao pointed to a few things high-performing teams do well. The first is to segment questions and requests into tactical, strategic, and operational. Strategic questions are typically more big picture, so they change less frequently and thus are typically less urgent than operational or tactical requests. Strong teams also adjust their thoroughness versus speed depending on what the situation calls for. Lastly, they automate as much as possible. There is still definitely a human in the loop when it comes to diagnostic analytics because you really have to say, you know, again, that correlation causation, okay, is the decline in the number of pirates causing a, an increase in global temperatures? No, right? <laughs> but when it comes to repetitive tasks that aren't value add for someone to do, you should automate those. Joao shared um, the definition of an insight from Brent Dykes, which is probably much more strict than many use around what actually is an insight. First, it must provide a shift in understanding, not we found this anomaly. It, it actually has to change what people know. Second, it must be unexpected. So those teams stuck in the, you know, that usual suspects mode won't meet this because they are only testing against the expected. And third, it must actually matter. It must be relevant and or aligned to what stakeholders care about. Joao added his own criteria of it must be on time and communicated effectively as well to be an insight. These are all necessary to actually drive the right action, right, of we had an insight and we're actually moving forward on it. Joao wrapped up with a few tips for improving your diagnostic analytics. First, show the value of drilling down into the why. Find a few initial 
easy use cases to really show the value, not your most difficult questions that will take months to really answer, right? Find those easier, those low-hanging fruits. Second, have the data and business people collaborate more closely so the data people can better understand requests and business people can start to think about new analytical approaches. Third, really get clear around your data role definitions. Who does what and why and what aren't they supposed to do? Fourth, start to get very clear on expectations. Improve that communication so everyone is on the same page. Fifth, plan ahead and don't get stuck in firefighting mode grasping for straws. It's too easy to approach diagnostic analytics in an unstructured, reactive manner. Finally, sixth, look to automate away the repetitive parts as much as possible. And a quick tidbit to just kind of wrap up on, beware the, the kind of boring label for diagnostic analytics. Many data people want to focus on the more technically challenging predictive or prescriptive analytics. Show people diag- diagnostic analytics is valued and that you want people focusing on it. 